Welcome to the podcast series from the Voices in Leadership webcast conversations at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.me voices. Good afternoon and welcome to the Voices in Leadership webcast, a series focusing on the nexus of science and leadership to create positive change in public health. I am Betty Johnson and I have the privilege to direct this program and to introduce today's guest. Anne Compton has covered reporting for ABC News from around the globe and through all 50 states with presidents, vice presidents, and first ladies through seven presidential campaigns. Ms. Compton began her career at ABC News with the inaugural months of the Gerald Ford presidency in the aftermath of the Watergate scandal. She was the first woman journalist and one of the youngest reporters ever assigned as a full-time White House correspondent by a network news organization. During the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001, Ms. Compton, among other reporters, was with U.S. President George W. Bush covering his trip to Florida to promote his education agenda when the attacks unfolded. Aboard Air Force One, while the plane flew from Florida to other parts of the country, advised not to return to Washington, Ms. Compton's finest work, by many estimations, was delivered on September the 11th, 2001. The only journalist allowed to remain aboard Air Force One, Ms. Compton's coverage of the terrorist attacks and the events that followed was recognized by name when the ABC News team won Emmy and Peabody Awards. However, the list of honors grows from there. Ms. Compton, in 2000, was inducted into the Journalism Hall of Fame by the Society of Professional Journalists and into the National Radio Hall of Fame in 2005. She was part of the team awarded the prestigious Silver Baton Alfred I. DuPont Columbia University Award for the network's coverage of September the 11th, 2001. She is a former president of the White House Correspondents Association, has served as chairwoman of the governing board of the Radio and Television Correspondents Association, and on the advisory board of the Freedom Forum Media Studies Center. A floor reporter at Republican and Democratic National Conventions, Ms. Compton served as a panelist for two presidential debates. Would love to see you participate in one of the presidential <laughs> debates now. <laughs> A graduate of Hollings University, Ms. Compton was retired from ABC News on September 10, 2014, 41 years to the day she began her career. She is married to Dr. William Hughes, who is in our audience today. Of all her accolades, however, Ms. Compton has said that her most valued is a golden statuette, a name in her Mother of the Year. Before I turn this session over to today's interviewer, Dr. Vishvishwana Lee Kum Ki, Professor of Health Communication here at the school. Please join me as we welcome Anne Compton to the Voices and Leadership series at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Thank you. Thank you, Betty. Uh, let me start by welcoming everyone uh, for coming here. Uh, and, and it's such a delight and pleasure to have you here at the School of Public Health. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming. So. Uh, I am, um, I will be remiss if I do not start with that eventful day on 9-11. So can you just walk us through what was, what happened and what was going through your mind? We talk about decisions and what leaders do in crises. And that day 
when I had already covered the White House for about 25 years, uh, came while the president was on a pretty boring education trip to Florida. It was the last stop. And it, by luck, was my day to be the pool reporter on board Air Force One and in the motorcade with the president. Uh, and the rest of the 50 or 60 reporters were over at this school uh, where the president would make his remarks. And I had covered the president for a long time, and I saw something stunning. I'm standing in the back of a classroom where there are five or six reporters and a couple of camera crews. We will pool our information later with the other reporters who are waiting in the cafeteria. And I saw the president's chief of staff come into this classroom and interrupt the president. Nobody interrupts the president, even in front of a classroom of second graders. Mm -hmm. And I wrote it down in my reporter's night notebook, 9.07 a.m., Andy Card whispers. And you've all seen the video of the look on the president's face, uh, gravity. Uh, we knew it was something, must be something critical. We had heard about an airplane crash. I made a sign toward Andy like going like this, and he put up two fingers. One plane crash in New York could be an accident. Two was trouble. The president stood up, excused himself, and went into the next room where he could see on a television the, the pictures over and over again of the second plane hitting the second tower. As a reporter, I knew that the president had two or three things that were in the top of his mind. One, the horror of the United States being attacked and possibly tens of thousands of people in these buildings uh, being killed and wounded. Uh, second, I knew he would want to know who's responsible. This was a time when terrorism was beginning to spread, but had never reached a human soft target like that. They'd hit military ranks, they've hit American ships, but now to target Americans going to work in the morning. And then I knew that he would want to get back to Washington. Because it's important when you communicate leadership at a time of crisis that you have to remind people who's in charge and show that the American government hadn't been brought to its knees. We raced to Air Force One, the Secret Service yelling at us to hurry up and get on the plane. Move it, move it, move it, they said, which is a Secret Service code word for move it, move it, move it. <laughs> get on that plane. And we thought we were going back to Washington. They closed the door and the Pentagon was hit. And there's no way that a military jet carrying the President of the United States and the control of the military would be flown into what was now a war zone in Washington. The day lasted 10 hours after those first attacks and the President kind of had nowhere to go. He was frustrated. He was in an airplane. We're now at 44,000 feet. And I had a very weak picture from the ground on the television sets in the bulkhead wall of each cabin. Very faint picture. So the information coming to us of buildings falling and people running and screaming, clouds of very little information coming to us and very little for the President of the United States who had to know how to, to react, how to come in. He had three secure phone lines and no video conference. He liked to look people in the eye. So that's why we eventually landed in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, at the Strategic Air Command headquarters, and he could go to an underground bunker. It is now 1.32 in the afternoon uh, after the morning attacks. By then, they thought all the planes that had been considered 
threats in the air had been grounded. The skies were clear except for us. Not a very comforting feeling. The president sat down in that underground bunker, and while I was not allowed to go down there with him, um, we were told that he conducted a, a teleconference. He could look at Mayor Giuliani in New York. He could look at Donald Rumsfeld at the Pentagon. He could look at Vice President Cheney, who was at the White House along with the national security team. And he said, I'm coming home. Mm -hmm. The kind of leadership that he faced was multifaceted at that point. And I saw him a couple of times, including on the flight back to Washington, where uh, he had to be very careful what he said. In a time of crisis, you don't talk off the top of your head. And he had said back at the school that uh, it was a parent terrorist attack. We must return to Washington. We will bring to justice those responsible for this. And on Air Force One, he came back to the cabin where only a few of us had been allowed to st stay with him. I was the only broadcast reporter. He came back and he said something to the effect of, we'll get those thugs. We landed in Washington. He went to the White House and he addressed the nation from the Oval Office, completing a day to say that the United States government is not going to be brought to its knees. And on the steps of the U.S. Capitol, members of Congress who had been evacuated returned mm -hmm. and stood on the steps to sing God Bless America. That's how they showed the country that the American government had not been crippled. So th that's very dramatic, and uh, I mean, all of us who have lived through that day, you know, w were very emotional and felt it. But sitting in where you were sitting, or standing where you were standing, uh, watching people make these decisions under extremely stressful circumstances, what what was your thought process, and how did you prepare for it? There's no way you can prepare for something like this. How were these decisions made? Awesome. Looking backwards at it, I kind of think is what I imagine it would be for a for a surgeon in a in a trauma in a emergency room with a accident victims coming in. You don't stop to think about the personal element, the emotion of it. You get to work, and by the time I reached the White House, ten hours later. And finally, my responsibility to report all the details back to the other reporters um, on the ground. Once my responsibility was over, I got to tell you, I sat down and I cried. The immense, the enormity of how many deaths. Uh, I didn't even know while we were flying about the plane that crashed in, in uh, Pennsylvania. And the idea that there were human faces behind these tragedies, including the first email from my sons at Vanderbilt University who said, Mom. Uh, when I got back to the White House, the email said, Mom, our fraternity brother Ted was on the 93rd floor of the first tower. And at that point, I sat down and I cried. And there's a sense of vulnerability that everybody felt. But as a reporter, just as you are a surgeon or a president, you bring your focus back to where you can do the most good. You don't have time to get emotional. Mm -hmm. So you were able to separate yourself as a, as someone, as, a, as an American feeling this, but with a duty to... I think report. so, Vish, because I think uh, as a reporter, and I'd already been a reporter covering the White House for about 25 years, that you know when there's a breaking crisis in front of you, all you're looking at is, what do I know? What do the American people need to know? What are the questions outstanding? And where in the world 
from 44,000 feet? Do I get to go the, get those answers? And then, of course, there was the problem. The only thing I had to communicate was a little Motorola clamshell phone and no signal, no cell signal at 44,000 feet. So I had to wait till I got on the ground to report back to my fellow reporters. So you said uh, something very interesting that President Bush and uh, came back uh, to Washington, D.C., and the first thing he did was to address the nation. Absolutely. Uh, to communicate very clearly that that you know we have a functioning government that is in charge of of, of the preparations to 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 take care take care of the country. Now, so looking back over oh, 15 years later, what role do you think communication plays for leadership in times of crisis? In crises, it brings out the best and the worst in how we communicate, and I know very well that President Bush was incredibly frustrated that he could not communicate uh, during those early hours. In fact, when we stopped a refuel, uh, refueling of Air Force One at a, at a military base in Louisiana, he, he wanted to come make a statement. He didn't know my camera wasn't plugged into anything. We were standing in a room uh, uh, of, in an Air Force base, and he gave a statement saying what they had learned so far and that, uh, that the world will you know, unite against this. And uh, he didn't realize that his words weren't going out there, but he felt that he was making uh, the best information. There's also the president knew so little at that point. Mm -hmm. And I think the decisions that a, uh, any leader makes at a time of crisis has to be based on pretty good fact. What he knew and what we did not is that he had already, a couple of months earlier, asked the CIA for a report, what could Al-Qaeda do on American soil? Mm -hmm. And that report had been finished over the summer and it was waiting for him on his desk. Mm -hmm. He had not yet seen it. But of course, you know, it didn't include. Mm -hmm. Oh, they could load fully loaded aircraft with full loads of fuel and crash them into mm -hmm. important buildings. Mm -hmm. So there's there so much he didn't know of. And that's where the danger comes for any leader. Mm -hmm. If you're going to go off and, uh, and, and speak, you have to know that what limited facts you've got, mm -hmm. you have to be confident of them. Mm -hmm. And you can't speculate. And, and what else can a leader do in terms of communication? Now, this is all, of course, retrospectively, mm -hmm. 15 years later, in times of crisis, what are the elements, other elements, in, in addition to facts and data? Well, uh, it, when you don't have the facts and data, a leader also has to communicate resolve. And I think that's what President Bush had going for him that day. He didn't know really who was behind it, although he he had his mm -hmm. suspicions. He didn't know how many people were dead or how many buildings or, or what other wave. Remember, this came in three, four waves. The first tower, the second tower, mm -hmm. the Pentagon, the plane in, that crashed into a field in, in Pennsylvania, clearly, they think, bound for Washington, D.C., who knows what building. That um, he, what he did know is that the United States had already been uh, trying to stand up to terror. There was a special unit at the CIA that met every afternoon at 5 o'clock, the UBL unit, Osama bin Laden. Mm -hmm. They knew who the bad guy was. And so he knew that the uh, communication intelligence cooperating with other trusted allies would be crucial. So he got on the phone. Mm 
mm. not publicly, but to the other world leaders to make sure that the mm -hmm. uh, other voices of authority would always know where he was headed and mm -hmm. what he was doing. He was not out there alone. He knew he needed that world community behind him. Mm -hmm. Stepping back a little bit, you know, uh, so you have observed many leaders in crisis in your 40 years as a, as a journalist. Some of them are major crises such as 9-11, but not all of them are. What do you think of some of the characteristics of a successful leader are? Uh, in times of crisis? Um, I'm thinking of a couple of different mm -hmm. crises because some of them come upon very president very quickly, like 9-11 right. mm -hmm. or the bombing of the Oklahoma uh, City building, uh, which, uh, which was a domestic terrorism. I'm also thinking about the United States economy sliding off a cliff mm -hmm. in 2008 and Barack Obama got the very first briefing after Election Day. He was in Chicago. We were in Chicago with him. And they sat him down. They had briefers from Washington who said to him what they had already told President Bush. This isn't a recession. This could be a depression. And so he had to drop all the arguments that he was making for the election, and he had to turn 100% of his focus immediately on how do they stop this. And that's when they came up with a $800 billion stimulus program. He didn't call it that. That's a poison name. Don't use wrong terms. If you're going to bring the American people along with you, you call it a recovery program, not a stimulus program. You put your vice president in charge of it so you don't have to do it. So sharing a little bit of the wealth or something. But I I think it, it, it's, it's really for any president and any leader facing a crisis, keeping that sense for the American people that they are being brought along and knowing things as you do it. The worst thing that can happen to you, and it's happened to you at airline gates when the airplane isn't going and they give you four different excuses mm -hmm. of what, oh, it's, you know, it's a flat tire, mm -hmm. oh, it's air traffic control, you know you aren't getting the full mm -hmm. picture. The sense that you can bring your audience along with you is absolutely mm -hmm. critical. So you identified at least two major elements of communication for a leader. So one is framing language, careful use of language, yes. to having one uniform or unified message, not multiple messages. Any other thoughts about communication and thanks well, for I, leaders? Well, you are so right. Language is important. And the words, you t words matter, mm -hmm. and they really do. It helps, I, I got to tell you, in a crisis, I think the most important thing for any leader, whether it's a university community that has, has uh, hit a crisis, whether it's a corporation mm -hmm. that has seen, mm -hmm. uh, uh, seen a, a dramatic uh, a train crash or a, a coal mine collapse, in a crisis, you are only as good as all your preparation has been for years and years before that. You have to know your own system so well. You have to know you've practiced the fire drills for whatever crisis could, uh, could hit your organization. We all get the big bucks for what we do at the moment of crisis. And that includes years and months and careful planning for what you would do. We hear it every time we get on an airplane where the emergency exits are. Look how good the air traffic, air, air safety has become in the years since I was, I was young and, and plane crashes were mm -hmm. very often fatal and, and not as well handled as they are today. So it takes a good executive, a good leader has spent 
careful attention on preparing his workforce and his structure with, with good plans and practice them and then know exactly where to go at the moment the crisis hits. So you anticipated my question, and that was my question, and how does one prepare for a crisis which is by definition unanticipated? So one is plans, it, you said. It can is be practice. unanticipated, mm -hmm. but you know that there are risks out there. Every mother knows that if you have a three-year-old, you don't put glass knickknacks out on the, uh, the coffee table. Those go into storage till the child is bigger. Every college student knows you don't go leaving your laptop or your smartphone on the wall uh, outside Starbucks while you go in to get there. There are lots of things in life that we just naturally say, well, here's the smart thing to do. It's not complicated. But, there, but the mm -hmm. things that you think about, and I don't mean being afraid to go places and afraid to say things, but being smart about it and thinking ahead. And uh, leaders have to have the smarts to think ahead and know at least the parameters of what could be at risk. Wonderful. So one more question around this issue of crisis and leadership. Um, it is very well known that you are one of the only reporter, actually, and so you managed to negotiate your way onto the plane. Um, and negotiation and navigation is a very critical component of this yeah. uh, managing uh, teams yeah. and managing crisis. Can you just enlighten us a little bit on that? And I'm how glad did you, you raised that, that because so, that mm -hmm. was a risk that I saw coming. They're on Air Force One, there are about 12 reporters and camera crews, and we were landing to refuel, and I said, there is a risk that they will kick all of us off this airplane and the president will for his own safety. And I went to the chief of staff and I went to the White House press secretary, Ari Fleischer, and I said, the president needs to ensure to the American people that he is safe and that he's, he's on this. And the way you do that is through an independent press voice. You've got to keep us on the plane. They kicked them all off except for me. Well, two, <laughs> two reporters and a camera crew. And, uh, but I saw that risk coming. And it was not anything I was trained to do. It just made sense, right? If you get rid of us, how will we know that the president is all right? How will the country have? And that they knew. Ari Fleischer later told me there was never any thought of kicking everybody off because they knew keeping that line of communication open mm -hmm. to their constituency. Mm -hmm. They're employers. Mm -hmm. The American people are the president's boss. Mm -hmm. He wanted to make sure that communication mm -hmm. was open. Mm -hmm. No, that, that's very helpful to know. So we can spend the entire day talking <laughs> about crisis uh, and communications, but I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, so we are in a school of public health where you know one of the um, three or four things we do is discovery of knowledge. You know, we we do fundamental basic research. And then we communicate this research through professional publications and journals. But more important, we also try to translate this knowledge for public consumption. And that's always a challenge, you know. And we rely on, on news media, among others, to, to, to translate this knowledge uh, to, to promote awareness and promote uh, uh, behaviors and change behaviors. So my question is, you know, how do you um, um, see our role in terms of you know the specialized knowledge being translated 
to, to promote change in public health. And also, Can so. I tell you, it's not going to get easier in the media and information society we live in now. The need for specialized information is so keen and the appetite for it in the mainstream news media seems to be evaporating. We don't have health reporters or environmental reporters or Paris bureau chiefs anymore. The internet, on the flip side of that though, Vish, the internet now provides the ability for citizens and for reporters who are not experts in health, but who do have to get a spot onto the evening news one night, to go on and find those expert voices and call uh, your school of public health and say, how do I understand that? And how do I better express this? So that we can go and find sources. Uh, the problem is in a media environment where local newspapers are dying on the vine, network newscasts are being filled up with more and more social, uh, cultural news than it is hard information, that Americans have to look harder for the information they need. Uh, it's there, but your role in getting that expert information, whether it's on a live video stream, archived in the, in the, or where you have experts where journeyman journalists can call and say, I need help learning this. That's a valuable, valuable solution that you provide to the country. Mm -hmm. So what, so how do you look at this very dynamic changing media landscape, uh, you know, especially, uh, you know, uh, you know, as platforms are evolving very rapidly, what, how do you see the role of journalism within this platform? Yeah, and I don't see the pendulum coming back. I don't want to end this on an, uh, a pessimistic note because I'm a big optimist on the, on, the, um, on the incredible wealth of information out there. But it is absolutely true. Americans now tend to head to their own comfort zone for political news, maybe for health news, maybe for cultural uh, entertainment, and we're becoming so divided and losing a national voice. People who are looking for hard information have to look ever more hard for it, and that's not good. Um, I have a lot more questions, but I'm, I'm being told, and I should wrap up. So I have one last question, okay. which, which keeps coming up. It's always and the last so, question so, that so, gets you. Right, <laughs> right. I assure you, that's not the intention here. Uh, so <laughs> as a as a leader, you have been very active, you led teams, you had to lead producers, um, and as, as a woman, you know, one of the first correspondents, what advice do you have to, to uh, young women these days who are wrestling with multiple challenges, uh, including issues like work-life balance? Um, and, 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 and other kinds of challenges in terms of career, et cetera. My husband, Bill, who is a doctor, a medical doctor, and I raised uh, four wonderful children. And it, there's always a tear, whether it's a mother, working mother going to work, or whether it's a father with kids and a working wife going to work. There, the, the world is making it easier to do that. Childcare is far more accessible, not any cheaper, but it's far more accessible than it used to be. But I think society now so smiles on the idea of families that can 
uh, have an active and fulfilling professional life, and it's still it's now more socially acceptable than ever to to divert some of that time to raising families. The importance, the key center of family being at the center of everything, and I've honestly found maybe it's just in my little world of journalism or my little world of the White House press corps sitting in that in that little area of just not far from the Oval Office. I find now that the playing field is more level than it's ever been before, not only because there are so many women who have shown leadership, that we have a woman nominee for president this year, but because so many of the men I work with and that my sons work with, so many of the men are married to women who are doing exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. So uh, as, as a, um, as, you know, you said, you know, the playing field is much more level or leveler than it has been the case, and we have made uh, considerable progress, but we have still a, a long way to go. Um, what advice do you have in terms of negotiating and navigating issues of, um, um, you know, on the one extreme sexism, but also implicit biases that, that inform, particularly Absolutely. for women, though it could be applied to certain uh, groups, or, right, racial and ethnic groups. Ethnic minorities. Know, so, so. Mm -hmm. know your facts. Do your job really, really well so that you don't give anyone an opportunity to say that category, that, that race, that, that gender can't do it. And be, be absolutely upfront uh, with people. Treat them with the same respect you would ask of them, including young people who are working with you, because in my case, that young person 10 years later became my boss. <laughs> Thank you, Anne. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and ideas with you. Thank with you. Us. Thanks so much. Thank you. This has been a Voices in Leadership production at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph dot me slash voices. We encourage you to share voices in leadership.